It's the evening of February 26th, 1889. Two men come out of the Three Arrows pub in Deansgate, a rough working class area of Manchester. The older of the two is around 50. He's a big man with a stout physique as someone who appreciates the good life. He wears gold-framed glasses on his plump face and his bushy mutton chops make him look like a character from a Dickens novel. Judging by his expensively tailored clothes and the gold chain visible in his waistcoat, he's a prosperous businessman. He's also very drunk. There's a biting chill in the air, but the cold does nothing to sober him up. He staggers and lurches unsteadily. His companion is around 18 years old, fresh-faced, clean-shaven, about five foot five inches tall, maybe shorter. It's hard to tell because he's wearing a tall top hat, the type known as a chimney pot. He doesn't seem drunk at all, or at least he's nowhere near as far gone as the other man. His eyes dart warily about. If you saw these two together, you'd notice them and maybe wonder what exactly is going on here. That's just what the cab driver waiting nearby is thinking. The two men had hailed him earlier on Cattington Street, near the cathedral. He brought them here to the Three Arrows, where they told him to wait while they went inside for a swift drink. There are some parts of Manchester that a respectable citizen would be well advised to stay clear of. Deansgate is one of them. It's the home of street gangs and thieves, the center of the city's criminal underworld. Most of the pubs are seedy dives, the Three Arrows is no exception. The younger of the two doesn't look out of place, but just what is the wealthy older man doing here? The younger man gives the cab driver an address in Stratford, not far from Old Trafford. He helps his companion into the cab, then gets in himself. The cab pulls off, but it hasn't gone far before it runs into an unexpected obstacle. Mexican Joe's Wild West show is in town, and to advertise the grand opening, there's a parade through the streets of Manchester. The driver steers his cab to the side of the road to let the long procession pass. Cowboys on horseback crack whips and fire pistols into the air. Native Americans on ponies brandish tomahawks. Stagecoaches and wagon trains rumble by as a cavalry of officers bugle blares. The crowd cheers appreciatively. It's not every day the American Wild West comes to Manchester. The parade moves on. The cabbie's getting ready to resume the journey when someone calls out to him, Oi, a young fella just jumped out of your cab. The cabman looks back. Sure enough, one of the carriage doors is open, but the young man is nowhere to be seen. The driver gets down off his box seat to check on the remaining passenger. His main concern is that he'll be able to pay the fare. But this guy isn't good for anything much at all. He slumped forward with his head resting on the seat opposite. Looks like he's passed out. The cabbie lifts the hefty gentleman back up into the seated position, but the man's head lolls forward so that his chin is resting on his chest. His passenger isn't happy about being disturbed. Go away, leave me alone, he mumbles, his breath smelling strongly of alcohol. As the cab driver is deciding what to do, he notices that the man's gold spectacles are gone. There's no sign of the gold watch chain he spotted earlier. The cabbie remembers seeing a police constable in Cattington Street, so he heads back there. Luckily, the same constable is still on duty. P.C. William Jakeman remembers seeing the mismatched couple get into the cab. 
He climbs in to take a closer look at the unconscious man. Then he tells the driver to head straight for the Royal Infirmary. But as the man's lifeless body is thrown about by the jolting of the carriage, the policeman fears they may be too late. At last, they reach the infirmary. The big man's feet drag along the ground as P.C. Jakeman and the cab driver struggle to carry him inside. A doctor rushes up to examine him and immediately declares him dead. It's the end of a life, but the beginning of an enthralling mystery. Who is the dead man and what did he die of? Who is the mysterious young man seen with him earlier? And why did he run away from the cab? Is he just an innocent bystander who got scared when his companion passed out? Or something more sinister? A murder, perhaps? These are the questions facing the man called to investigate. Chief Inspector Jerome Kamenada of Manchester's Detective Division. Fortunately, Detective Kamenada has a talent for finding answers. My name is Mark Dodson, and welcome to Detectives Don't Sleep. Each week, we'll shadow the world's most remarkable sleuths, real detectives who worked extraordinary cases. This week, we follow one of the finest detectives of the Victorian era, Manchester's own detective, Chief Inspector Jerome Kamenada, as he takes on the most baffling case of his career. When a wealthy businessman is found dead and a handsome cab, there are plenty of questions, but very few clues to go on. Coming in the wake of the notorious Whitechapel murders, it's a shocking crime that strikes terror into the hearts of polite Mancunian society. Can DCI Kamenada solve the mystery before the perpetrator strikes again? From Noiser, this is the story of Manchester's Sherlock Holmes. And this is Detectives Don't Sleep. his dark complexion, black hair, and beard, 45-year-old detective Kamenada takes after his Italian father. Though when he opens his mouth, he speaks with a flat, voweled accent of a native Mancunian. Actually, Kamenada is of mixed Irish and Italian descent, which makes him a double outsider. He's also a practicing Catholic at a time when that's often met with suspicion. It says something about his skills as an investigator, that he's risen to the top of Manchester's detective division, despite facing prejudice. His reputation has reached far beyond the city limits. He often undertakes work for external police forces, even traveling as far as America to track down suspects. And his exploits have graced the pages of national newspapers. Just like the fictional detective Sherlock Holmes, Kamenada is known for his unconventional methods. In an operation to crack down on a gang of pickpockets at the Grand National, he went undercover as a laborer. His disguise was so effective, the chief constable called for him to be arrested as one of the thieves. Manchester in the late Victorian period stands at the threshold of the world's industrial future. It has the feel of a frontier city, a brutal and unforgiving place. Kamenada is not averse to meeting violence with violence. Physically attacked as a beat cop, he quickly learned that the only way to survive was to give as good as he got. 
He's not only survived, he's earned the respect of the criminals he's policing, as well as his fellow officers. Deansgate, where the Three Arrows pub is located, is at the center of the world of violent criminality. Kaminata knows the neighborhood well. After all, he was born there. These were the streets he played in as a child of the slums. In his memoirs, he describes Deansgate as the rendezvous of thieves and a very hotbed of social inequity and vice. But the criminals who gave the area its bad rep were his neighbors growing up. Now, Kaminata is known to have an extensive network of informants working for him. He meets him in secret on the back pew of St. Mary's, a Catholic church in Deansgate. It's tempting to speculate that many of them may have been his childhood friends. His father died at the age of 37 when Kaminata was just four years old, leaving the family without their main breadwinner. Poverty and hardship were the only certainties but the difficulties he faced growing up to find him as a man. In some ways, they gave him sympathy for the criminals he was pitted against. He also has a unique insight into criminal psychology. He understands what drives men and women to commit crimes. He also has an inside knowledge of the criminal world. With his encyclopedic memory, Kaminata is like a one-man criminal records office. And if things had worked out slightly differently for Kaminata, he might have been sucked into a life of crime himself. With his intelligence and resourcefulness, he would have made a master criminal, a formidable opponent for his fellow detectives. Instead, he chose the path of law and order. That's good news for the people of Manchester. Now, the first task facing Kaminata in the case of the Manchester Cab mystery is to identify the victim. He was obviously a well-to-do gentleman, making him a fish out of water in the decidedly rough neighborhood of Deansgate. What brought him here? And what was he doing drinking in a dive like the Three Arrows? When the poor and the destitute turn up dead, it can take a long time to identify their bodies. Sometimes, no one comes forward. But this man, this man's different. Given his apparently high status, Kaminata is hopeful that his family and friends will soon report him missing. Sure enough, a lead comes in concerning a missing man called John Robert Fletcher, who matches the victim's description. Fletcher is, or was, a semi-retired businessman with shares in a firm of paper manufacturers. DCI Kaminata heads to the firm's offices to talk to the man's nephew, who runs the business. The distraught nephew fills Kaminata in on his uncle's background. As well as being a wealthy businessman, the dead man was a justice of the peace and a member of Lancashire County Council. He's a pillar of the community, in other words. On the day of his disappearance, John Fletcher was wearing a pair of gold spectacles and a gold watch chain. The watch alone was worth 120 pounds, more than a labor would make in a year at this time. He was also carrying a purse of gold and silver sovereigns. In a place like Deansgate, <laughs> he may as well have put a target on his back. Kaminata notes that none of these valuable items were found on the body of the dead man. Looks like there's a crime to investigate after all. Robbery. 
though Kaminada doesn't rule out the possibility of murder. Fletcher's nephew helps the detective piece together his uncle's movements on the last day of his life. He came into the office in the morning, but left around 1 p.m. to go to a property auction being held near the cathedral. A well-known figure in business circles, Fletcher was seen at the auction by a number of associates, some of whom described him as being under the influence of drink. It seems that the respectable Mr. Fletcher had a weakness for alcohol. After talking to Fletcher's nephew, Kaminata hits the streets. He leads a team of detectives knocking on doors, going into shops and pubs, calling anywhere the dead man might have visited in an effort to retrace his steps. From talking to witnesses, Kaminata places Fletcher at a stall in Victoria Market just before 7 p.m. Significantly, those who see him said he was with a much younger man, short in stature and dressed in a brown checked suit. It's the same mismatched pair seen by P.C. William Jakeman and the cab driver who picked him up in Cattington Street. Kaminata is certain that John Fletcher is the dead man lying in Manchester's Royal Infirmary. The question now is what did he die of? And was it murder? I'm historian Ruth Goodman, host of Noise's newest podcast, The Curious History of Your Home. I spent my life investigating the hidden history of everyday objects. The vacuum cleaner in your cupboard, sleek and compact today. But when it was invented, it was literally powered by horses and took four to six people to operate. The minty fresh toothpaste by a sink. Well, if you lived in ancient Greece, you'd be washing your teeth with ground-up bones and oyster shells. Double-glazed windows? We owe those to a French king's odd fascination with oranges. The Curious History of Your Home explores the extraordinary in the ordinary. Listen to The Curious History of Your Home each Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. From award-winning podcasters Noiser, The Curious History of Your Home. The doctor who examined Fletcher when he was taken into the infirmary couldn't find signs of violence on his body. His preliminary view is that Fletcher died from alcohol poisoning. Now, given what Kaminata's learned about the dead man's fondness for the bottle, it seems a reasonable hypothesis. But Kaminata's instincts are telling him there's more to this. The coroner's inquest begins on March 1st, but is adjourned to give the city analyst, Charles Estcourt, Time to carry out tests on three samples taken from the dead man's stomach and intestines. Meanwhile, you can bet DCI Kaminata doesn't just sit back and wait for the results. Not while he has a mysterious short man and a brown check suit to track down. The first lead to follow up is the address in Stratford that Fletcher's companion gave to the cab driver before running off. It turns out to be a tailor shop. The owner claims to have no knowledge of John Fletcher or anyone matching the description of the brown-suited young man. He's mystified about being dragged into the affair and seems to be telling the truth. Kaminata speculates that the address had been chosen at random and the young man had always intended to jump out of the cab at some point along the way. Okay, 
Let's try and get inside Kamenada's mind as he works out his next move. The only thing he knows for certain is that the young man got out of the cab and ran off. But the question is, where'd he go? To get the answer, he tracks down the man in the crowd who called out to the cab driver about one of the passengers running off. Pretty incredible detective work, huh? Well, they don't call him the real Sherlock Holmes for nothing. This witness tells Kamenada that he saw the suspect disappear down a footpath leading to the All Saints Church on Oxford Road. It's now that Kamenada's understanding of criminal psychology comes into play. If you were a man who had just stolen a purse of gold, where would you head? Well, maybe you'd be sensible and lie low. But Kamenada knows most criminals would head straight for the pub to celebrate their windfall. Kamenada concentrates his efforts on visiting the pubs and cheap beer houses in the area where the young man was last seen. It isn't long before he gets results. The landlady of the Yorkminster Beer House remembers seeing a short, youngish man with a fresh-faced complexion dressed in a brown-checked suit. When Kamenada asks if there was anything else about this individual that stood out, he strikes gold, literally. The young man was wearing an expensive-looking gold watch and chain in his waistcoat. The landlady also noticed that when he pulled out a handful of coins from his pocket, there were some gold sovereigns among the coppers. Now, this stuck out to her because, well, let's just say, York Minster is not the kind of place where people throw gold coins around. If this was Fletcher's companion, then it looks like he left the cab with the older man's possessions, which makes him a thief. But is he also a murderer? Before he can answer that question, DCI Kamenada has to find him. He learns from the landlady that after the suspect had finished his drink, he paid another man six pence to fetch a cab for him, leaving the beer house at about 8.25. It's back to good old-fashioned police work for Kamenada, stopping all the cabs in the area until he finds one that picked up a short, clean-shaven man wearing a brown suit from outside the York Minster on the evening in question. Again, his approach pays off, and he eventually speaks to a cab driver who remembers taking someone answering the suspect's description to a pub called The Locomotive. One thing caught the cabbie's eye, an expensive-looking gold watch that the young man had chained to his waistcoat. DCI Kamenata is closing in on his suspect. Kamenata knows the locomotive pub well. It's a notorious haunt of the boxing fraternity. The golden age of prize fighting is in the past, but illegal bouts are still organized. And even with legitimate contests, match fixing and betting scams are widespread. In other words, boxing and criminality go together. So Kamenata is not surprised when his inquiries among the staff and regulars at the locomotive draw a blank. Even if they knew the identity of the flashy young man sporting a gold watch, it's unlikely that they would tell a police detective. The chances are he's one of their own. And so, Kamenata meets a wall of silence. He's not deterred. His powers of deduction come into play again. 
He's convinced that the suspect is in some way connected to Manchester's shady boxing scene. This narrows the search down considerably. Kamenad is now available to tap into his own vast knowledge of Manchester's underworld to come up with a name. For some time now, Kamenad has been hearing rumors about a former prize fighter turned pub landlord and boxing promoter called John Parton, aka Pig Jack. The rumors are that Pig Jack has a habit of drugging the mouthwash of boxers so they would lose bouts against his own fighters, enabling Pig Jack to make a killing from gambling. Some even go so far as to hint that Parton drugs customers in his pub to facilitate robbing them. With his broken nose and cauliflower ears, the aging prizefighter Parton doesn't match the description of the fresh-faced young man seen in the company of John Fletcher. But his 18-year-old son, Charles, does. So maybe Charlie Parton has learned a few tricks about drugging from his old dad. Kamenata's information is that Charlie Parton is still living with his parents at an address not far from the locomotive pub. But word must have reached the Partons that the police are looking for their son. Because by the time Kamenata and his men swoop in, the whole family has flown the roost. It's frustrating, but DCI Kamenata is a persistent man. Don't forget his network of informers. Someone, we don't know who, slips in beside Kamenata in the back pew of St. Mary's Church, the place where he meets his informants. He gives him an address. 12 Moore Street, off Rochdale Road in North Manchester. The Parton family's current whereabouts. This time, there'll be no slip-ups. Kamenata puts together a crack team of trusted officers. It's 12.30 in the morning of March the 2nd, just four days after John Fletcher was found dead in the cab. Icy mist swirls around the gaslights in the street as DCI Kamenata moves his men into position outside the suspect's house. Although Kamenata can't see the property clearly in the dark, he knows the type well enough. It's one of a row of identical red brick houses, all joined together in a single soot-begrimed terrace. The locals call them two up, two downs, as there are just two rooms on each floor. Kamenata whispers his final orders, then gives the signal. Kamenata and his team gain entry to the house and rush upstairs, where they find Charlie Parton in bed. There are five or six other people sleeping in the room, which is typical in working-class families of the time. A bleary-eyed Parton sits up, clearly stunned by the presence of uniformed bobbies and plainclothes detectives in his bedroom. As Kamenata had hoped, he doesn't know what's hit him. Kamenata tells Parton to get dressed and advises him of his rights. Parton is taken away in a horse-drawn black Mariah to Manchester's town hall, where the detective division is based. He's held in a police cell overnight. DCI Kamenata has his suspect where he wants him, behind bars. But does he have enough to prove the man is guilty of any crime? After all, Kamenata has arrested Charlie Parton purely on a hunch. In the morning, if his plan works out, he'll know for sure whether his hunch is sound. Meanwhile, both men are in for an anxious night. 
The next morning, Kaminata puts Parton in a lineup with seven other men and parades him in front of not one, but six witnesses. One, P.C. William Jakeman. Two, the driver of the cab in which Fletcher was found dead. Three, the landlady of the Yorkminster beer house. Four, the man from Yorkminster, who was given sixpence to fetch a cab. Five, the second cabman, who drove a young man from the Yorkminster to the locomotive pub. Six, a police sergeant, who spoke with the second cabman on the way to the locomotive. All of these witnesses identify Charlie Parton as the person they saw. Kaminata charges Parton with the theft of a gold watch and an unknown quantity of money. Parton seems unconcerned. He's got an alibi, or so he claims. He was at a Greyhound racing event in Liverpool on the day of the crime and was home by 6 o'clock. Kaminata doesn't think much of his alibi. Not when he's got six witnesses saying Parton was somewhere else. In the meantime, DCI Kaminata receives some information that could provide a vital clue to how John Fletcher met his death. A report comes in from Liverpool Police. A bottle of chloral hydrate was stolen from a pharmacist's shop on the 19th of February five days before John Fletcher's death. The suspect is described as a young man. Could it be Charlie Parton, do you think? DCI Kaminata does for two reasons. First, there's the location of the theft, Liverpool. That's where Parton claimed to be when John Fletcher died. To Kaminata, this is too much of a coincidence. Second, think about what he stole, chloral hydrate. It's a sedative, just what you need to knock out a drunkard if you intend to rob him. The problem is, if taken in high enough quantities, it can also be fatal. And it's even more deadly if taken in combination with alcohol. Kaminata travels to Liverpool to get the pharmacist's story. A young man came into his shop asking for chloral hydrate for his mother, who he said suffered from angina pectoris. While the pharmacist was distracted, the customer reached over the counter, grabbed the big bottle of chloral hydrate, and ran out. Kaminata takes the pharmacist back to Manchester, where he puts Charlie Parton in yet another lineup. The pharmacist IDs him without a moment's hesitation. Things are looking bad for Charlie Parton, especially when two more men, Samuel Oldfield and John Parkey, come forward claiming that they too had been drugged and robbed by Parton on two separate nights out. It looks suspiciously like Parton has an M.O. On March 8, 1889, Charlie Parton appears at the city police court, charged with the willful murder of John Robert Fletcher. Other charges are read out. The robbery of a gold watch and chain, administering chloral hydrate, for the purpose of committing robbery, and drugging and robbing Samuel Oldfield and John Parkey. The courtroom is packed with spectators, drawn by the offender's young age and the shocking nature of his alleged crimes. The mood is a mixture of sympathy and horror, the atmosphere one of excitement. Crucial medical evidence is presented by the city analyst, Charles Estcourt. 
And you may remember that samples from the dead man's intestine and stomach were sent to him for analysis. The court falls into a hushed silence as escort takes the stand. This is the first case of death by chloral hydrate poisoning ever to be prosecuted in a British court. So there's a lot riding on what he has to say. Charlie Parton's life, for one thing. Estcourt explains that after carrying out a very delicate chemical test, he discovered traces of chloroform in one of the samples he had been sent. Chloroform is what you get when chloral hydrate decomposes. It proves John Fletcher had been given the drug. Unfortunately for the prosecution, Estcourt is unable to say how much chloral hydrate was present in the dead man's body and whether it was enough to kill him. However, the fact is that the substance is more deadly when combined with alcohol. Administering it to a man who has consumed as much ardent spirits as Fletcher had is an extremely reckless, not to say dangerous, thing to do. Parton's defense barrister naturally does his best to undermine the medical evidence. But the presiding magistrate has heard enough to commit Parton to trial for murder at Liverpool Assizes. DCI Caminata knows that this case is far from proven. Given a sympathetic jury, there's every chance that Charlie Parton could be acquitted. Caminata's got 10 days to turn up something new. It's time for some deductive thinking again. If Parton put chloral hydrate into John Fletcher's drink, the chances are he did so at the Three Arrows pub just before Fletcher died. Maybe there was someone there who saw him do it. Someone who, for whatever reason, hasn't come forward yet. Caminata goes back to his network of informants. They drink in pubs like the Three Arrows all the time. They hear the gossip, a word let slip here, a nod in the right direction. Caminata tells them to keep their ears open for anything related to the case. It's pretty much the main topic of conversation in every tap room across the city anyway. Before long, one of his informants comes through for him with a name, Edward Phillips, a bookkeeper from a firm not far from the Three Arrows. Caminata tracks down Phillips, who is at first reluctant to talk to the detective, but eventually he admits that he was in the pub that night and saw Parton and Fletcher together. Now there's more. He says he saw Parton hold a small glass vial over a glass of beer and pour the contents into the drink. Phillips had assumed it was some kind of medicine and that he poured it into his own drink. Phillips hadn't come forward so far because he didn't want to get mixed up with the case. At the time, he couldn't be sure what he'd seen. Now, after reading all about Fletcher's death in the papers, he's convinced he saw Parton slip something into the other man's drink. Kaminata spells it out for him in no uncertain terms. What he saw was murder. He persuades Phillips that it's his civic duty to give evidence at Parton's trial. The trial begins in Liverpool on March 18th. 1889. A huge crowd is gathered on the steps outside the courthouse. The papers observe that many of those attending are female. Parton pleads not guilty. Outwardly, he appears calm, even cocky. 
though DCI Kaminata notes that the prisoner pays close attention to the proceedings. Hardly surprising. If this doesn't go Parton's way, he could end up on the scaffold with a noose around his neck. The prosecution barrister, Mr. C.H. Hopwood, QC, lays out the case against Parton, citing the number of witnesses who saw him in the company of John Fletcher. He also mentions other witnesses who later saw Parton showing off a valuable gold watch and splashing his money about. Mr. Hopwood goes on to describe the theft of chloral hydrate from the Liverpool pharmacist. An interesting detail comes to light. Parton had told the pharmacist that he needed the drug for his mother, who suffered from angina pectoris. It's now revealed that it was in fact Parton's father, Pig Jack, who had angina, for which he was being treated with chloral hydrate. As Jerome Caminata notes in his autobiography, hence it might be that the prisoner had learned the term and associated it with the administration of chloral. Next comes the evidence of Caminata's star witness, Edward Phillips, the man who saw Parton put something in Fletcher's drink. The defense barrister attempts to undermine his credibility. Why did it take him so long to come forward? And why did he only do so after DCI Caminata had spoken to him? The suggestion is that Caminata has put him up to it. But Phillips holds his ground. He gives a simple but very human explanation for his reluctance to get involved. He didn't want anyone, particularly his employers, to know that he had been enjoying a drink in the pub. He might lose his job if they thought he was a drinker. The medical evidence is bolstered by the testimony of Professor of Pathology, Dr. Julius Dreschfield. Having examined the heart, kidneys, and liver of the deceased, he's in no doubt that John Fletcher died from the combined effect of alcohol and chlorohydrate on his system. Parton's main defense is his alleged alibi. But given the number of witnesses who say he was in Manchester with Fletcher that evening, it doesn't carry much weight. The jury retires, and after only 20 minutes, returns to deliver a guilty verdict. But they also enter a strong recommendation to mercy on account of the prisoner's youth. Despite that, the judge dons his black cap and delivers the only sentence he can, death by hanging. Loud sobs can be heard from the public gallery. Parton tightly clutches the rail in front of him. Apart from that, he shows no outward emotion. We can never know what was going on inside Charlie Parton's head when he heard the sentence. But the day after the trial ends, an article is published in the Lancaster Gazette, which casts light on Parton's version of events. The paper doesn't say exactly when the incident it reports takes place, but it must be some time before Parton is transferred to Liverpool for his trial, as he's being held in a police cell in the Manchester Detective Division. Here's what it says happened. The air in Parton's cell is cold and stale. It smells of the criminals who've been locked up in here before him. Their graffiti marks the walls. Parton paces the floor restlessly. The investigation is taking its toll on him. 
the strain of keeping up a confident front while that copper Kaminata bombards him with questions is beginning to wear him down. He does his best to answer them, but the hard part is remembering what lies you've told already. The young man shakes his head in frustration. He throws a few punches into the air, expanding energy, trying to loosen his tense muscles. Maybe he should have stuck with boxing. He was a handy contender. Parton had tried to make a go of the sport, even traveling to America for a few bouts, but it hadn't worked out. He'd come back to Manchester with his tail between his legs. He didn't want to end up like his dad, living off past glories, a broken man in more ways than one. No way, no way was Charlie Parton going to let that happen to him. His thoughts are interrupted by the sound of the hatch and his door opening. The cop on duty tells him he has a visitor. A well-dressed, respectable-looking gentleman strides into the cell. Parton recognizes him as a friend of his father's. Well, friend might be going too far, but he's seen the man's face around. The visitor smiles reassuringly at Parton. The two of them sit down next to each other on Parton's bunk. It feels like a long time since Parton's seen a friendly face. And there's something about the man's sympathetic manner that makes him drop his guard. It's been such an effort these last few days. Before long, it all comes tumbling out. How he met Fletcher years ago when Parton had a job as a messenger at a hotel Fletcher used to frequent. Then, out of the blue, the two of them had bumped into each other that day and decided to go for a drink, for old time's sake. Parton suggested the three arrows. It was there he slipped the drug into the other man's drink. I gave him more than I intended, Parton confides. And when we came out of the three arrows, I saw he was a goner. So I put him in the cab and got away as soon as I could. Parton feels better for getting all this off his chest. It's not so much a confession as a justification for why he's pleading not guilty. It was a mistake, not a murder. He never meant to kill the old man, just knock him out for a while. He's not going to hang for making a mistake, is he? But that's a question the visitor can't or won't answer. The article in the Lancaster Gazette succeeds in swaying public opinion, even though it's basically a confession of guilt. The prevailing view is that Parton is guilty of manslaughter rather than willful murder. A petition is started to change his sentence, which is eventually reduced from the death penalty to penal servitude for life. In fact, Parton gets out after 11 years. For a time, he makes a living trading off his notoriety, regaling audiences with the story of how he killed John Fletcher. When the First World War breaks out in 1914, he enlists in the army and is sent to the Western Front. After the war, he returns to his criminal ways and spends the rest of his life in and out of prison. For DCI Kaminata, Parton's conviction is a remarkable achievement. Not only did he uncover a crime when no one else could see one, he tracked down the perpetrator and brought him to justice, all in record time. In fact, the whole investigation 
took just a day over three weeks from Fletcher being found dead in the cab to Parton being found guilty. According to the Manchester Courier, Kamenata's handling of the case placed him on the foremost rank of the detectives in his day. Kamenata retires from policing 10 years later in 1899. Like many ex-detectives, he starts his own private investigation business. Because of Kamenata's remarkable powers of deduction and his use of disguise, the crime historian Angela Buckley compares him to the world's most famous fictional detective. In her book, The Real Sherlock Holmes, The Hidden Story of Jerome Kamenata, Buckley points out that when the first Sherlock Holmes story came out in 1886, Kamenata was at the height of his powers and his fame. What do you think? Is it possible that the Mancunian policeman was the inspiration for Conan Doyle's hero? Certainly, the case of the Manchester Cab is a baffling mystery that could have come straight from the pages of a Sherlock Holmes story. Next time on Detectives Don't Sleep. We're in Portland in 1955. An explosion rips through a prominent department store in the heart of the city. Aaron Frank, the owner of the store, was handed an envelope moments before the blast. Inside is an extortion letter. The author warns that there's another bomb in the store and it's rigged to go off the next day. The bomber does offer one way out though. He will provide the location of the bomb and instructions on how to dismantle it safely. All Aaron Frank has to do is cough up $50,000. Big Bill Brown is the detective tasked with finding the culprit. With a bomb threat looming, it's a tense race against the clock. Tracking him down will take the cops on a bizarre scavenger hunt across the city of Portland and beyond. Time Magazine will go on to call it one of the most extraordinary extortion plots in criminal history. And that it is. So extraordinary, in fact, that it reads like the plot of a blockbuster movie, except every single word of it is true. Join us next time on Detectives Don't Sleep for the blind leading the blind.